Amen. It's such a delight to preach the Word of God to you. I would ask you to take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 20, please. Luke 20, verses 1 through 26 today. This book is an account of the life of Jesus told from someone who knew many of the people who were closest to Jesus during His life and ministry. Uh, Luke wrote this down to generate faith, to answer questions, to clarify the truth and to convince his readers that Jesus is worth following. But the conflict in the story has been rising since Jesus' first sermon in Nazareth, all the way back in chapter 4, where when he said that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, people wanted to throw him over the cliff, and he miraculously escaped from that danger because it was not his hour. But ever since that day, early on in this book, the temperature has been rising in the conflict between him and the religious leaders in Israel. The plots against him are getting more serious. The conflict continues today in chapter 20, verses 1 through 26. Please follow along as I read aloud. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, "'Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God.' Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, 
and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Surely you have heard the statement that desperate times call for desperate measures. And so sometimes this means that you sell one of your most valuable possessions so that you can pay an expense that's very important to you. I recently heard of a young lady who was attempting to sell a a sports jersey that was really important to her so that she could pay for her dad's funeral expenses. Uh, Perhaps you uh, desperate times call for desperate measures means that you cancel an event to keep people safe or to show respect for a major situation. So the way that after the Highland Park uh, shooting this past July 4th, the White Sox canceled their fireworks display after that game, just realizing that people weren't really in a jovial mood after a situation like that. Desperate times call for desperate measures may mean that you go off to war, as so many millions of people have done in our own country, in wars like the Civil War or World War One and Two, and in more recent years in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that's to say nothing of people who have uh, fought in Ukraine over the past year and, and so forth. Yes, desperate times call for desperate measures, but unfortunately in our passage today, those who were feeling desperate were the Jewish leaders, those who had been frustrated by Jesus time and again. They were feeling like the people were falling for what they considered to be an arrogant, blaspheming distraction named Jesus. And now it's Passover time, and the city streets are getting full as people have journeyed from all over Israel to Jerusalem for this important holiday. And this Jesus figure is in the temple acting like he owns the place. And the desperate measures that these Jewish leaders took only served to expose their own foolishness and their own hard hearts. What Luke wants us to learn in this passage is that all authority rightly belongs to Jesus. All authority rightly belongs to Jesus. So your response, your heart should be to bow before him, to submit to the authority of Christ. There are three sections in this passage that I've just read to you. Perhaps your Bible is broken up that way. Perhaps it's broken up slightly differently. But three sections, all exposing that there are essentially two ways you can respond to Jesus. You can rejoice in Him and delight in Him and stand in awe at Him and marvel at Him. Or you can reject Him and refuse to submit to Him and face the consequences. Here in verses 1 through 8, we see the, the people doubting especially the Jewish leaders, doubting Jesus' authority. And this is a group of people, when it mentions this group, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, when it mentions them all together, it's just saying the the select group of Jewish leaders, and they have been on his case for months, if not longer, at this point. And they are frustrated at, again, his apparent grasping for authority when they consider him to have none whatsoever. And so uh, we we find out that they, they question... By what authority do you do these things? And what you want to do when you see a phrase like that is just back up in your Bible and see what are the these things that these people are frustrated with. And if you look back just a few verses, you remember, okay, so he's just triumphantly entered into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, drawing attention to himself. Then when he got into the temple, he cleared it of these people who are selling belongings Uh, perhaps even just animals for sacrifices and so forth in the temple. 
And then, here he is standing there in the temple teaching and preaching the gospel, preaching the good news that he has come to fulfill the expectations of the Messiah from the Old Testament. These are the things that this passage calls our attention to that the elders and chief priests and scribes were frustrated by. Those would be the specific items that they're uh, questioning him about. By what authority do you think you can walk into this temple and without getting our permission just start preaching and teaching? Who, think, who made you think that you could do this? And it kind of reminded me as I studied this week of the passage in the movie Moneyball, if you've ever seen that, where Jonah Hill's character is thrust into this uh, meeting with the Oakland Athletics scouting team and general manager and so forth, other executives. And at some point, Billy Bean's character, who's Brad Pitt, points at this guy, Jonah Hill, I don't remember his name in the movie, and says, you know, every time he points at him, what that guy is supposed to say is, he gets on base. So that's, that's his line over and over again. But after a couple of these times, the other scouts and executives in the room would go, uh, who is this guy? Who said he could be in here with us? Like we're the elite people here in the athletics organization. So who let him in here? And that's what the scribes and chief priests are doing toward Jesus. Where in the world do you think you get the authority to just act like you own the temple? And Jesus, rather than answering that question directly, which they ask in a couple different ways, but he answers them, well, let me just ask you a question. You tell me first, did John get his authority from God? That's what it means. Does he get it from heaven? Or did he come up with it himself? That's what it means. Did he get it from man? So did he get his authority from God or did he come up with his authority himself? And there's really no third option. We know the answer as readers of Luke. Because you can go back to chapter 1, and there's a very long passage where John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, is praising God for what he's accomplishing in sending John. And so we know that John got his authority and his mission from God himself. And that means that they should believe John. And I think, as you read this, I think the chief priests and other leaders knew that. But they weren't willing to admit that out loud. Everybody else was believing it, right? They even say, like as they're huddling together, well, all the people seem to think he got his mission and authority from God. So we should probably get on board with that. But if we do, then it sounds like he was right, which means that he was right in predicting that this is the one we should listen to. So he's obviously wrong. But if we say that, they're going to stone us. So let's just not say anything. And so that's what they said. The people were convinced, but the leaders were not. And as they were debating, if I say this about John, this has to be true. Many people have that same mental conversation today about Jesus. If I believe that Jesus came back from the dead, I have to believe the whole package, right? You can't stop there. So that's really where we want to get to in our evangelistic conversations when someone says, I just don't believe in this Jesus person. I think a good follow-up question, if they're willing to hear it, sometimes that's the end of the conversation, you need to give people space and so forth, but if they're willing to hear it, a good follow-up question is, so you don't think Jesus came back from the dead? Because that is the issue. If He did, of course you should submit to Him. If He didn't, of course He's a fool and you should have no part in following Him because He's lying to you. But it's one or the other. John either got his authority from God or he got it from man. Jesus either rose from the dead or he didn't. So these are the key core questions. And that's why Jesus was asking this question, was to penetrate into their hearts and make them have to be honest with reality. 
If they had chosen to believe John, it would have meant that they had repented and believed the gospel, as John was preaching all the way back in chapter 3 before he baptized Jesus. But in the Bible, Israel's leaders and then the general population followed their, leader, uh, followed their lead, but especially the leaders rejected the prophets. You think of Isaiah, and you think of Jeremiah, and many others. And then they rejected John, and then they rejected Jesus. And as a result, God will reject them on the last day. And so I just want to pause and ask you, what about you? Are you willing to bow before the claims of Jesus, that He truly is God, that He truly came from God on a mission to rescue those who would humble themselves in repentance and faith? I think if Jesus had just cut to the chase, if you want to put it that way, and given a direct, a more direct answer, they would have arrested him on the spot. And I think he knew that. He was perceiving that there was an antagonistic attitude about this. They would have killed him, but it was not his time. And so he didn't give them this, this direct answer that they wanted. And so they, they went away, uh, or at least they, they were willing to end the conversation there. But Jesus wasn't willing to end the conversation there. He took it a step further. And here in verses 9 through 18, he tells a parable. And what you gather is that these, these leaders understood that he was talking about them. They accurately perceived that this parable was not just for them, it was about them. Jesus was talking directly about them. So I already read this parable. I won't read it again. But essentially what we have here is a parable about a vineyard. And that vineyard represents Israel. And we know that because Isaiah 5 is itself a parable about Israel in the form of a vineyard. It had fallen in some disarray. We also have uh, Psalm 80, verses 8 and following, talking about Israel as a vineyard. So we know that that the, in this parable, that the vineyard is, is Israel, and God is this man who planted a vineyard. Okay, so now we, we need to realize that not every last detail of the parable, we don't need to figure out every last detail, but God is the one who planted this vineyard, who gave Israel its life, in other words, and then he gave people to take care of it. And those would be Israel's leaders. All right, again, this is why they're figuring out this is about them. The tenants here are Israel's leaders. But he sent these servants. Who are the servants? They would have been the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the, the book of the Twelve, and so forth. And how did God's people, the tenants, respond to these servants? Very badly. They killed them, many of them. We read about that in Hebrews 11 last week. Some of them were sawn in sunder. They were sawn in two because of their preaching ministry to Israel's leaders. So God sent one prophet after another to his people to call them to holiness and repentance and right worship and justice and mercy, and they refused. And so John the Baptist came preaching the same gospel of repentance, and many responded positively, but not the leaders. Herod had John the Baptist beheaded because John preached a little too close to home and stepped on his toes a little too much by saying he was in an adulterous relationship back in chapter 7. And here in verse 13, the Lord decided to send, or the, the man who owns the vineyard decides to send his own son. And when you read that in verse 13, you read these words, I will send my beloved son. What does that make you think of? Just in the book of Luke, two passages should come to mind. The first is chapter 3, 
where Jesus is baptized and the voice comes from heaven saying, this is my fill in the blank, beloved son, right? So what should you do to him? Well, that makes you think of the next passage that comes to mind here. That's chapter 9, the transfiguration, where again, the voice comes from heaven. This is my son, my chosen one. What should you do with him? Listen to him. And so here, Jesus takes those two previous passages just over the last few years of his life and combines them here in telling this parable and says, God sent his own beloved son. Perhaps they will respect or listen to him. And instead, what did the people do? They said, let's get him out of here. Let's kill him. Let's throw him out. And so they went and they took him. We know, I'm going to tell you the end of the story here. It comes a couple chapters later in Luke. They take him out of Jerusalem and they kill him. They take him out of the vineyard and they kill him. This doesn't sound too good in this parable. But we know that they ultimately carried out this plan to kill, to take him out of the vineyard and throw him, uh, to to kill him. They they throw him out and kill him. And how do you think God responded to that? Well, we know, and this will come up later on in this book as well, that in the year 70 A.D., Jerusalem was destroyed because of their rebellion against God. And we also know that all those who reject Jesus are rejected by God. That is the point of this parable. You can leave any of the other details out. You've got to get the message of it. Those who reject Jesus are rejected by God. But then it says in in verse uh, 16, He, the man God, will come and destroy those tenants. He will reject them and give the vineyard to others. What does that mean? Well, we see that carry out throughout the book of Acts, which is the second part of Luke's gospel, essentially. It's the sequel to the gospel of Luke. What happens there? The gospel goes and spreads to the Gentiles. Well, that sounds terrible to Jewish people. Like, please stop. And that's why people here basically put their hands over their mouths and say, no way. That's essentially... What we have in verse, uh, end of verse 16, surely not. If you have the, the King James, it says, God forbid. Just don't let that happen. That sounds terrible. And Jesus says, this is what's going to happen. And let me tell you why. Because it's a fulfillment of Psalm 118, verse 22, that the chief cornerstone has been rejected. The builders rejected the chief cornerstone. Back in Psalm 118, that means they rejected David. Just as they rejected the other priests and prophets and the kings after David, the people kept refusing to listen to the rule of God. And so, as a result, they've rejected the cornerstone. As a result, everyone who falls on that stone, it's like they trip over him, they stumble over him, they'll be broken to pieces. And when it falls, it'll crush him. Either way, it's going to destroy you. That's referring back to two passages, Isaiah 8 and Daniel 2. Jesus is tying all these passages together into a little lump here to say, if you reject Jesus, you will be rejected by God. And even this this idea that the gospel will go to the Gentiles, the, the vineyard will be given to others in verse 16 there. Paul calls this inclusion of the Gentiles the mystery of the gospel in Ephesians 3, 6. There he says, Uh, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Again, I've said this 
three or four times over the last couple minutes. The bottom line of this parable is if you reject Jesus, you will be rejected by God. And so you should bow before Him with every part of your life. To reject Him is to be eternally rejected by God. To submit to Him in faith and repentance is to receive eternal life. And maybe you're listening to this sermon as someone who's facing a specific life-altering trial. You just want the weight of this burden off of you. And you would do anything to get out from under it. So how does a passage like this one encourage you in your moment of need? And I would put it this way. If your hope is in Jesus, you will not be rejected on the last day. You might think that that does not take my problem away from me. And I would say, I agree, it does not. But it does give you perspective. And it does give you hope. And it does give you stability. When the whole world feels like it's teetering out of control around you, this truth that God will not reject you if you are in His Son gives you truth to latch onto and to cling onto as you go through the trials in your life. There are two choices. You can rejoice and worship in Christ or you can reject Him. And that is exactly what these men were continuing to do there in Jerusalem that day. Just moments after he, he shares this parable, verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests, and you can include there the elders, this large group of people, sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived, again, they are accurately reading the truth here, that, they had told, that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. What does that mean? They feared the people means they weren't wanting to make a riot out of this, right? Like, everybody's coming to Jerusalem for Passover. We do not want to make a scene. Let's do anything that's going to avoid that. And so they were afraid of creating a ruckus here at this holy time of the year at Passover. So they watched him instead, and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere, verse 20, that they might catch him in something he said, so that they could hand him over to Pontius Pilate, the governor. That's who this governor is here. We talked about Pontius Pilate in the Nicene Creed a few minutes ago. They wanted to put him in his hands because if you give him to him, now he's somebody else's problem. You don't have to worry about him anymore. But we want to marvel at Jesus' wisdom. In a day when we so regularly hear utter foolishness, every way we turn. Look at the wisdom in Jesus and the questions he asks, both in the first section of this chapter and here in this section, and at the answers that he gives or, or doesn't give. And we recall back in chapter 2, there were two different references to him increasing in wisdom. And here you're seeing it on full display. As he walks in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, he is oozing wisdom in his answers and in his questions. And so here these spies come to him and say, you truly teach the way of God, which means you tell people. We can just tell, as they're saying this pretending, that you tell people what it looks like to honor God, to truly walk in justice and mercy. But he perceived their craftiness in verse 23 in the question, which we'll come back to the question in just a second. I just want to tell you, if anybody ever tells you in the Bible that you were crafty, That's really bad, okay? There are no positive references to being crafty in the Bible. Where's the first one that you can think of? Genesis 3. And who's the crafty one? 
Satan. He doesn't call him Satan in Genesis 3, but other passages of the Bible tell us that's who that was back in Genesis 3. So he's the first one who's called crafty. You have Job in Job 5.13 talking about uh, how bad it is to be crafty. Psalm 83 verse 3 says the same thing. 1 Corinthians 3.19 and Ephesians 4.14. Those are all the places in the Bible where it talks about being crafty and 100% of the time it's a bad thing to be considered crafty. And so here Jesus perceives their craftiness. Yes, they could perceive he's aiming the parable right at them. But he could perceive that these people are lying deceivers, that they have sided with the evil one against him. Of course, we already knew that was the case because they were trying to catch him in verse 20. And we find out in verse 26 they're unsuccessful in catching him. So that's the whole point of them asking this question. We want to catch him in a lie or in some kind of a scheme so we can throw him in jail by handing him over to Pilate. Now, these people, these Jewish people, were living under Roman rule. Yes, we're in Jerusalem in this story, as we have been for a while here. We're focusing on this time in the, in the gospel. But they're under Roman rule. That means that the Caesar, the emperor, is their ruler. And the person who's specifically responsible for this part of the Roman Empire is Pontius Pilate, who ultimately will be the one who, who condemns Jesus to die by crucifixion. But to be a Jewish person living under Roman rule was really bad. Like, you just really hated this. Uh, I don't know if this is the best comparison. I guess it would be kind of like us living under, like, North Korean rule right now. Like, we, we just would not be enjoying that moment. And they certainly were not either. And so, one of the realities of life under Roman rule was that you had to pay a tax just to be alive. For the privilege of being a human being living under Roman rule, you had to give a coin every single year, a day's wage back to the emperor. And the way you did that was by paying him his own currency, which had his own face on it. So the ruler at this time was a guy named Tiberius, and he was the son of Caesar Augustus. And so on this coin, it said, when Jesus says, "'Whose face is on this coin?' It's the emperor, and what's it say? He is the son, Tiberius is the son of the divine Augustus. In other words, Caesar Augustus is God, so worship him. That's essentially what this coin was saying. That's why it had his face on it. And so Jesus asks, okay, you've got this sneaky question with sneaky intent. Let me ask you a question. Whose face is on it? Well, the emperor's, Tiberius the son of, of, of Augustus, okay, and so give to him what is his and give to God what is God's. Clear as mud, right? So let me just unpack that a little bit for you. Maybe you've wrestled over this. This is a unique message. No one had ever said this before. Now we hear it all the time, perhaps. What does that mean? You should give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. It has lots of different implications. One is it tells us very clearly Caesar is not God. So you should not worship him. That's part of what it means. It also means, though, that human authority is under God's authority by the two parts of this. Give to Caesar his part. Give to God his part. It's saying that like all of life is a circle, and inside that circle there's this little circle that's called Caesar. And you live under both, but they're not the same. So human authority is under God's authority. 
Authority can be good and beautiful and fruitful. It is good for us to submit to the authorities that God puts in our lives. And so we can and should rightly submit to human authority, except when it demands that we violate our conscience and sin against God. We honor the rightful authorities that God has sovereignly placed in our lives. This means that as parents, we honor, or or as children, I should say, we honor our father and mother. And that doesn't stop when you move out of the home. You still treat them with honor, with dignity, with respect. While you're living in the home, yes, you obey your children. As children, you obey your father and mother. Paul unpacks what this looks like in Romans 13. Peter unpacks what this looks like in 1 Peter 2. And so I encourage you to, those, to, to consider those passages in light of this one. But what Paul's doing in Romans 13 and what Peter's doing in 1 Peter 2 is unpacking what Jesus says here to render to Caesar, to give back to him that coin that has his face on it that rightly belongs to him, but then to give to God what belongs to him. And that's where we typically stop. We typically stop with what's it mean to give to Caesar what belongs to him? I think we should give way more attention to what does it mean to give to God what belongs to God. And so I just want to ask you, what belongs to God? Everything. You belong to God. Your life is God's. And so how do we give what He owns back to Him? You use your whole life for His glory. Let's not make it complicated. You repent and you believe Him. And you obey Him. That's what it looks like to give God what belongs to God. It might mean that you give the life it probably means for most of us. It's going to mean that you have your pie chart of your life. And right now, as this is your pie chart, you have to imagine this continues over here. Here's the part that we typically give to the church right here, like this little like sliver. And I just want to encourage you maybe to like increase it, maybe in both directions, in your pie chart of your life. What's it look like to live in the life of the church as someone who's giving back to God what belongs to Him? I'm going to give Him my time and my energy and my resources and my relationships. And I'm going to submit all of my relationships to Jesus. I'm going to take someone under my wing. I'm going to serve in various ways, whether anybody really notices or, or cares. Another implication of a passage like this, that we're to give to God what is God's, is that we are to make war, to fight against the sins that entangle us and rob us of our joy by at least temporarily calling into question whose side we're on. That's what we do when we sin. It's like these false teachers of the scribes and Pharisees siding with the evil one against Jesus. You're on one side or the other. There's no neutral. And when we sin and we get addicted to sins, we temporarily throw our lot in with the evil one. And so, to give back to God what is God's, we give our lives to Him. We make war on our sins. This could be consumerism. We just impulsively spend money in your Amazon Delivery guy shows up a couple times a day because you order so much from Amazon because you can't stop. That very well may be sin. I can't say for sure. Depends on what you're ordering. Maybe you're ordering medical supplies to take care of all the triage situations in your life. That's fine. I'm just saying very possibly impulsive spending reveals a heart issue. Maybe it's greed. 
Maybe there's lust involved. Maybe there's anger involved. Maybe there's deception in your life. Make war on sin. These are all applications that have to do with our lives individually. What's it look like for our church to give back to God? What is God's? We have to just stay, say right there and state right up front, the church belongs to Jesus. He is the head of the church. No one else. And so that means we run a church the way Jesus says to run the church. Does this book say everything it needs to say about how to run a church? Yes. And so we submit to what this says. That means that God gets His say on what church leadership looks like, on what it looks like to respond to sin, on what it looks like to declare His authority to convert souls, His authority alone to convert souls. It means that everything He says in this book is true, that there's one way to God, that marriage between one man and one woman, that every human life is full of dignity, that there's a responsibility for believers to help other Christians follow Jesus. That the sovereignty of God gloriously rules over all things. All of these things are true because the Bible says that they're true. Therefore, God says that they're true. And if we're going to give back to God, what is God's? We're going to say yes and amen to everything that He says. So yes, we should give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. That means, that they, yes, they should keep paying taxes. Now, why did that question even matter? If Jesus had said, I forgot to say this part, if Jesus had said, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, they're going to throw him right over to the Roman authorities and say, he's an insurrectionist. He's here encouraging people not to pay their taxes. Well, then he's definitely going to Pilate, and he's probably going to be crucified just for that attitude. But if he says, yes, you should pay your taxes, the Jewish people are going to be like, ugh, sick. I'm tired of this. We thought the Messiah was going to come and get this ruler off our back. Instead, he's saying we should just submit to it. No way. Jesus like threaded the needle perfectly. Again, we see his wisdom on display here. And everybody there stood in awe. It was like they couldn't say anything else. They marveled, it says, at his answer. And they became silent. They didn't know where else to go with this. Just before Jesus ascended to heaven, he told his disciples that all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. And it's on that basis that he said to make disciples. And so, yes, desperate times call for desperate measures. But our desperate times are very different than those of the Jewish leaders who were seeking to trick and kill Jesus. Our desperation is quite different. We know we only have so much time. We have one life to live, to give back to God what is God's. We have one life to tell people that there is a Savior and His name is Jesus, that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. We know that people are dying and going to hell because of their fist-shaking rebellion against Jesus. And so we seek to use our energy to make disciples of the one who has all authority and who will come again and before whom every knee will bow. Let's close in prayer. Father, we stand in awe of Jesus as the people did in the temple that day, of His wisdom, of His majesty, of His sovereignty, and of His authority. We want to use our lives by fighting our sin, by enduring our trials, by preaching the gospel, by making disciples, by serving this congregation for Your glory. And we pray for Your grace to do that as we go from here today. In Christ's name, amen.